Good morning, Village Bible Church. It is a privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning, and it has been a while since I've been on this stage to preach. Actually, until the 8 o'clock service this morning, I hadn't been on this stage to preach, even though, I, as Phil said, I have been around here long enough that I do vaguely recall the very first service in this building the first time that it was built, and it wasn't finished then. This building has seen a lot of changes since I first stepped into it, and Al could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was 1991 that this building was officially opened. But we are still, it is still, we are still Village Bible Church. Now I have a lot of memories here. Memory is sort of a funny thing, isn't it? We can remember the most silly, insignificant details from life, and yet the really important things seem to slip through her fingers. I, to this day, remember the phone number of the only pizza place that delivered on campus the college I went to after midnight, 237-7788. I cannot tell you what's on my schedule for this coming week. Memory is important. And I have no doubt that the Badal family right now is doing a lot of remembering. Remembering Michelle as wife and mother and grandmother and a woman of God. I met Michelle Badal over 32 years ago in a little yellow building that sat about where the bathrooms and the education wing sit now. And I am pretty sure that one of those very first times was a Sunday night and her oldest son was being auctioned off to raise money for the youth group. It's one of my first memories of her. And memory orients us in the world. It tells us where we come from and where we belong. It tells us who we are. And sometimes our memories get fuzzy and we forget, right? And, and this week, the moments that Pastor Tim's family spend remembering Michelle will help anchor her in their hearts to help remember who they are and whose they are. And I have no doubt, too, that in all of those memories, there will be an undercurrent, an undercurrent of the Jesus that she loved and the church she served. Plano Bible Church, what is now our Plano campus, here at Village Bible Church in Sugar Grove, at First Baptist in Sycamore, for longer than I care to remember, because I remember when they left to go there. And around the world, really, the ministry has extended, the impact has extended around the world. But our memories fade, like I said. And we know that we need to be reminded of the events and the people who form us. And we create reminders, right? We create memorials. We have events both to weep and to celebrate, to help us to remember. This is not a new thing. In Joshua chapter 4, when the children of Israel first enter the promised land, God says to them, take 12 stones and stack them up as stones of remembrance. Why did they do that? They did that so as generations came along, new generations that had not seen what God had done, the older generations could stop 
and point to something tangible and say, this is what God did for us. Those stones were there so that they could remember. And sometimes all of the business and all of the stuff that we have clouds our memories. We have more resources today than anywhere and frankly any when in history. The church has Bible colleges and seminaries and books and pastors and podcasts and conferences and videos and I could keep going. You name it, we've got it. Yet worldwide, only 5% of pastors have any formal training. Think about that. Here, despite all of the resources we have, the church is shrinking. Africa, Latin America, India, even Nepal and Iran are seeing explosive growth in Christianity. And yet they have almost nothing. We follow corporate business models and pop culture and have beautiful buildings, and they struggle to get by. We export the heresy of the prosperity gospel, and they have to deal with both its allure and its destructive wake. We have a responsibility to teach them, and yet, I wonder, Why is it that the faith of an often marginalized people and church is far more vibrant than my faith? What do I have to learn from the church around the world? Because the church is far bigger than we imagine. It transcends time and space, ethnicity and culture. It is the body of Christ. And from time to time, we need to pause to look at those stones of remembrance To be reminded of our calling as God's church. Last fall, I joined Travis Fleming in a new ministry called Apollos Watered. And we started it to water the faith of the church so that you, so that we can water our world in turn. To help the church, to help us to, no matter where we are or who we are, To be the church of Christ. To remember what it means because sometimes we forget. And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. And we're not going to go super in depth. But we are going to look at four things that will help us to remember. Four things that will help us to become living memorials to God's calling on us as his church. This is what Peter says. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your church. Thank you for Village Bible Church and the privilege you give us to come and gather together to praise your name and to worship you, to hear from your word. I want to pray a special blessing on the Badal family this week as they grieve, as they celebrate the life and the homegoing of Michelle Badal. I pray that we would continue the legacy that she has shown us. I pray that today, this morning, that you would allow us to see yourself more clearly and a little bit more of how we are to live in light of that fact. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. Remembering our calling starts with remembering whose we are. It begins with Jesus. Verse 4 calls him the living stone the chief cornerstone. And in verse 5, we are called living stones being built into a spiritual house. That's a temple. That is God's dwelling place on earth. The cornerstone sets the direction for building a building and it provides the foundational support. The entire building is built on it. The church is built on Jesus. And if the church is not built on Jesus, it will fall. And frankly, it's not really a church after all. What we build our lives on sets both the direction that we walk on and determines whether or not we will be able to stand when difficult times come. Peter, in this passage, quotes both the Psalms and Isaiah about Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected. And left to our own devices, we do not pick Jesus. We reject him. And we need to remember that about ourselves, right? We, are, we too are inclined to go our own way, to build our lives on other stones. We want to claim our own authentic identity. And Paul corrects us in this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is called a stumbling block, a scandalon, literally a scandal, in part because we don't want to give up claiming, defining our own identity. We think that if we do, we will become less than who we are supposed to be. Something false. Here's the problem with that. The irony in that. It is only when we give up trying to create, to define our own identities, identities that we can't live up to anyway, that we can become who we are truly intended to be. 
Because as Genesis 1.26 tells us, we were created in God's image, not our own. We belong to Him in the first place. This is not an easy thing. It is a hard thing, but it is a necessary thing. Verse 9 says, we are a special, or people for His own possession. We belong to Jesus, not to ourselves. The Psalms regularly refer to Jesus as a shepherd. God is a shepherd. And his people is a sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, Psalm 100. And the prophets do the same thing. Matthew 9.36. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. In John chapter 10, he calls himself the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That should tell us something both both about the Savior we claim and our responsibilities as His church. Because as much as we are a village Bible church, before we are that, we are the church of Jesus Christ. And when we identify even with good things, great churches or great people before Jesus, we have a problem. Paul in 1 Corinthians, reminds us of this. The church at Corinth had problems. Factions were arising. Paul says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord assigned each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. When we put ourselves in this camp or that camp, even the camp of an apostle, we run the risk of forgetting that we belong to Jesus first. He is the chief cornerstone. And even Christian leaders are going to let us down. And we have seen examples recently and repeatedly. But we don't belong to them. We belong to Jesus. And when you and I are tempted to falter because of what happens with other people, we need to remember that. We belong to Jesus. When we look around at a world that seems to have gone mad, when we feel trampled on or are tempted to be afraid and only look at things through our own the lens of our own perspective, what we like, we need to remember we belong to Jesus. The things that we think, the things that we believe, the way that we live our lives, it needs to be built on him because he is the chief cornerstone. And we have to ask, am I building my life on self or on the Savior? And to do that, we need to remember what he taught. Verse 8 said that the rejectors stumble because they don't obey. And verse 9 starts, but you. As in, you should not be like them. Jesus, number one thing that he taught was not rules, not regulations, not money, not heaven, but the kingdom of God. You see, the Jews in the first century had a problem. They had lost their kingdom. The pagan Roman Empire ruled. Pagan Greek thought controlled the social world of their existence. And so the Jews had several different ways that they responded to this and dealt with this. 
the Pharisees, they wanted strict adherence to the law. If everybody will obey the law, God will give us our kingdom back. So they created a bunch of extra rules so the 613 rules of the Old Testament law wouldn't be broken. Didn't work so well. The Sadducees became largely Greek in their thinking. They denied the resurrection. They became rich and powerful and ruled the temple. The Essenes were a group that we don't know much about, but they basically said, we're out. And they retreated into their own desert communities. And then you had some Jews like Matthew, tax collector, works for the Romans, or Simon, the zealot. The zealots were a political party in the first century Palestine that were dedicated to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. They were a, essentially, separatist militia. You see, in the background of all of that, Jesus comes onto the scene. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 3 and 4, and Mark 1 and Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus specifically says he is called to preach the good news, gospel of the kingdom of God. And everyone is excited. Yes, the kingdom of God is here. So excited that you get a Roman collaborator and a Jewish insurrectionist together following Jesus in the inner circle. Think about that. But there is a problem. Jesus has just made a profoundly political statement. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he proceeds to show both in his actions and his teachings for the next three years that this is a different sort of kingdom. Famously, in his trial before Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Not so famously, in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 20, at the very beginning of his teaching ministry, just after the temptation in the wilderness, we read this. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unfolding it, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That's when he starts to teach. The eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. This is the year that debts are canceled, slaves are free, and land goes back to its original owner. In Isaiah 61, we find out that this is a metaphor for God's salvation. The kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus preached, is not simply about getting into heaven. Dallas Willard used to say, the gospel is not about getting into heaven after you die. It's about getting into heaven before you die. You see, the gospel is about the afterlife and this life. They both matter. And Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 taught us, as we went through that series, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness and justice. And Hebrews 8 said that the new covenant, that means God's law, is supposed to be written in our hearts and in our minds. 
This is a different sort of kingdom, a kingdom that is supposed to change who we are. And Matthew 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And it tells us what citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like. It is a three-dimensional kingdom with an upward dimension of our relationship with God, an inward dimension of our changed heart, and an outward dimension of our relationships with one another. And it sounds a whole lot like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. to Get rid of all of those bad things. Crave God's word because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And in John 13 to 17, the last teachings of Jesus before his arrest, the upper room discourse, Jesus gives a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is what the kingdom of God looks like. It upends the powers of this world. It takes root in our hearts and our minds in the very lives that we lead. You see, God's kingdom doesn't come from status or power like Pilate thought it did. Instead, our kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of truth and righteousness, the kingdom of justice, mercy, and love. And if we take one of those things and we pit it against another one of those things, we are settling for a smaller kingdom than God's kingdom. We are, in fact, making it our own kingdom in the things that we like. We are forgetting who we are. Verses 9 to 10 echo... Exodus 19. It's God's covenant with Israel. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. God's chosen people. King James says a peculiar people. Technically, that's not about being strange, although we often take it that way. It's about being God's special possession, that we are uniquely his. A chosen people, literally race, a holy or set-apart nation. Paul in Galatians 3, 26-29 says this about who we are as the church. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Romans 11 says that Gentiles, and I would go out on a limb and say that's most everyone in this room, are wild shoots grafted into the olive tree that is God's people. Ephesians 2, 14 and following explains this. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself... One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him both have access to the Father by one spirit. In Jesus, the old rules of ethnicity and class 
and gender and culture go away. We are to be a different sort of people. Our allegiance shifts. In the first and second centuries, Christians were despised in part because they acted as if they were a different race. There are historical documents that say this. Basically what that means is they lived as if ethnicity didn't matter, class didn't matter, status didn't matter. It disrupted the way that people viewed the world. And that is the heart of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 where he prays both for his immediate disciples and for those who would come after, that's us. And he prays that all of them would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe in you, may believe that you sent me. And he goes on to say that they may be brought to complete unity. And often it does not feel like the church is one. We fight with anyone and everyone, and often, most notably, the people who are most like us. There are real and legitimate reasons for separation. I believe that doctrine matters far more than most Christians ever realize. There are places we cannot go, things we cannot affirm, things we must affirm. But guess what? This is doctrine too. This is the doctrine of the church. It is ecclesiology. How can we be a royal priesthood whose job it is to mediate between God and humanity if we don't show that we are one, if we do not love one another? Scripture is clear. Sin isolates us from God, but it also isolates us from one another. And Jesus frees us and paints a glorious picture of redemption in and through our wondrous, broken, diverse, new race that is united in him. And if the church is to be the church as Jesus intended it, we need one another. We need to learn and to, as well as to teach. We need to learn from people not like us. Look at our Aurora campus. Brothers and sisters from around the world who have come to worship with us, who have become, who are us. You see, the world is at our doorstep. It is in our businesses, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. It is in our pockets. And it is waiting to see if we will live out who we say that we are. The Roman world despised the church in part because they actually lived out their faith. And today I am afraid that too often we are despised not because we live it out, but because we don't. What would happen, for instance, if the church led in the area of racial reconciliation? If we led in caring for those who are not like us, for those who we disagree with. We may well be despised, but we would be despised because we look like Jesus, who after all came to a world, an entire world that rejected him. That is what we would look like. Which leads me to point four. Remember how we live. Jesus called disciples from every walk of life, people who otherwise hated one another. Remember, zealots and tax collectors in the very same group. 
And we tend to reduce discipleship to programs. If we are one sort of Christian, the program is about knowing the scripture, knowing doctrine. If we are another sort of of Christian, the program is about doing good things in the world around us. Right? Neither are bad things, but neither on their own shows us what a disciple is. Because Acts 9 and 19 tell us that one of the very first designators for the church were followers of the way. As in, live in the way of Jesus. Which looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And it looks a lot like 1 Peter 2, 1 to 2, and then verses 11 to 12. Abstain from evil and live such good lives among our pagan neighbors that even when they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God. In Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And his response comes straight out of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Matthew adds, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. As in, they summarize the entire law. We belong to Jesus. We are to echo his message, to be a people who are his special possession, a new kind of race who effectively becomes his kingdom on earth, and we do it by loving God and loving our neighbor. That's what the church is. That's what discipleship is. It is not a program, not a set of practices or information. It is the pursuit of God as revealed in Jesus, which transforms who we are. And then he sends us on a mission. A mission found in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. And Matthew puts it the way that most of us remember. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I can hear my professor, Elmer Towns, reciting this in Greek. Mathetusite pantate ethne. He liked to do that. Ethne. Ethnic groups. People. It doesn't matter who we are or where we are. This is Jesus' command to us. And for most of us, that sounds really scary. I can't do that. But we need to remember, this is not the first time Jesus sent out his disciples. In Luke 10, he sent out the 72, way bigger than the 12. And guess what? After that point, they still messed up. We know this from Scripture. They still got things wrong. But as that prayer we heard earlier said, he was in them. And it's all about him, not about us anyway. Our job is to so be Christ, even in our brokenness, that we show the world what true freedom is. And true discipleship means loving God and loving our neighbor and then go make more like you. At Apollos Watered, we call it missio holistic discipleship. It's a mouthful, pretty simple in what it means. Missio, to send, holistic, all of life. It is our belief that this is what the church is called to today in our time, in our space, whether we are in Sugar Grove or Singapore, the U.S. or Uganda. This isn't a do we have to type of calling. This is a we get to type of calling. Look, I fail all the time in that calling, but it is my heart's desire to be that kind of disciple, to be that kind of church, to remember whose we are.
we belong to Jesus. To remember what He taught. The kingdom of God is here both now and in eternity. To remember who we are. A peculiar people. A new race set apart to and for God. And how we are to live. Disciples sent into every area of life. To love God. To love our neighbor. And go make more like us. When we do, we become living flesh and blood, stones of remembrance, a memorial, a temple to the one who saves us, a temple that causes even those who accuse us to bless the name of Jesus.